Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In many cases, intimate partner violence occurs within a marriage, and this raises other legal issues. One wrinkle with divorce um, that has to do with availability of legal counsel is that Whereas in the family court, in matters of custody and orders of protection, there's a right to appointed counsel. In a divorce, there is no right to appointed counsel when you're dealing with economic issues such as the distribution of assets and debts. And one way that really affects um, low-income people is that, for example, there might be a husband who has a 20-year work history and has accumulated a pension during the marriage whereas the, um, the abused party, the wife, stayed home and took care of children and was not allowed to work, not allowed to go to school, not allowed to develop skills. Well, in a divorce, she would not have the right to have appointed counsel to help her get her, her portion of that pension, which she would otherwise be entitled to under the law. And that's similar to the family court, where a client, an abused wife or intimate partner, would not be entitled to counsel for child support cases as well as spousal support cases. So the issues are similar. Um, she would be, in, in a divorce case, she would be entitled to a, an attorney for the custody and visitation piece if it existed, same as in the family court. So one specific issue related to abuse and divorce is Sometimes you'll have instances where the victims leave the home because they're afraid to be there. And then are they giving up certain rights? Are they then exposing themselves to the ability for the abuser to say, you left the home, you abandoned that? That argument is made oftentimes by abusers that um, you're never going to get a part of our house or co-op or whatever they own jointly. But what the court looks at and what the law speaks to is, when was that asset purchased? If it was purchased during the marriage, New York specifically is not a title state, so whosever name is on the deed or on the um, mortgage paperwork is not necessarily considered the owner of that residence. It, the court looks at when was that property purchased. So if it was purchased during the marriage, it's considered marital property. The court looks at other things as to who put down the down payment and when dividing the property, but if the, mar if the asset was purchased during the marriage, then her portion of that asset is secured. I understand the, the financial part, but what about when we're talking about who gets to keep the house? Who gets to stay and who has to go? Well, that's it's a loaded question because the clients, the parties have to either agree, come to an agreement on that, or have a trial as to who should receive exclusive use and occupancy or go through extensive motion practice before getting to the trial level. And most often, the, in a circumstance where the victim has fled, then really the argument that you require exclusive use and occupancy because the children are rooted in that community kind of fails because you've already left and uprooted yourself from that community into a, safety, a safer place because safety was more important than staying in that community. Um, so I don't know if I would necessarily use that argument in the context of the client fleeing and then wanting to come back. But what I would say is that if the parties are still living together and there is a history of domestic violence, that supports her claim to have exclusive use and occupancy, especially if it goes to trial. She could talk about the abuse, discuss why she should stay in the residence and why he should be excluded 
primarily for the purpose of keeping the chil children in a stable environment and in their home and rooted Safety. in their community. Exactly. You mentioned there's no right to counsel in a divorce proceeding. How can an individual go about finding counsel? Well, she can look to organizations like ours, or if she can find family members or friends who could just help her get that one lump sum retainer fee payment and then engage the services of an attorney. And then that attorney can seek or request counsel fees to be paid by the moneyed spouse or the husband most often. Um, what about contingency fees? Contingency fees are unethical in matrimonial actions under the matrimonial ethical rules and laws. Um, because clients that are going through divorce actions or are victims or survivors of domestic violence, they are considered a bit more vulnerable. And when they are met with an attorney who might not have the best interests of the client at stake may make these empty promises and saying that I will get you custody or I will get you the entire house and say that, you know, You'll, I'll take whatever money from um, your overall distribution and I'll take a portion of that. The client is agreeing to engage in this relationship with the attorney under sometimes false pretenses. So contingency fees, retainer agreements are never um, allowed in matrimonial cases. They are in other civil actions like personal injury actions. On the one hand, you don't want lawyers uh, preying on vulnerable individuals, but why not just prohibit uh, lawyers from making false claims or making outrageous uh, promises? Isn't that already prohibited? Of course it is, but I can't account for the ethics of other attorneys. I can't, you know, that's not going to be spelled out in these agreements, but oftentimes also what happens if you have a contingency fee ag agreement, litigation might be never-ending. Um, the attorney might just prolong the litigation thinking that he can get more and more out of the marital pot for the client so his share could be greater. So there are many reasons why contingency fees in these types of cases are just prohibited. If you're dealing with a victim who's leaving a marriage, what tools do you have to get them support uh, immediately? Well, in the state of New York, the temporary maintenance guidelines were just enacted back in 2010. And what that allows for is the non-moneyed spouse or the um, less wage earner to receive financial assistance so she or he are on level playing field with the other spouse. Um, and that is temporary maintenance. So what the court does is take a formula. It takes a formula, plugs in clients in your client's income, the spouse's income, and comes up with a number for temporary maintenance. And that is durational just through the pendency of the divorce action. And I can give you an example where that um, may really help a client. One woman came to us and we're actually in the process of um, litigating her divorce case and she is a victim and a survivor of domestic violence. She has post-traumatic stress disorder from the amount of violence that she suffered sexually and physically. And she, because she was impoverished, because she fled from the marriage and from the abuse, she had to seek the resources of public assistance. So she was getting probably about $543 a month in public assistance, cash assistance for herself, and as well as some food stamps. And when she came to us, our main um, course was to get her financial assistance. So she wouldn't have to rely on the resources of the state as well as, so she could feel independent and self-supportive. So we petitioned the court, or 
filed an application seeking pendente lite relief, which means that during the pendency of the action, we were seeking certain relief for our client. One of those um, reliefs was temporary maintenance. And her husband was, or is, a sheet metal worker. He earns probably about $120,000 annually, contributes to retirement accounts, including a 401k, an annuity plan, and has a pension plan. So there are a lot of assets for her to, and, and, and most of them were marital assets. So in taking his whole income um, together and subtracting some expenses, he was paying some child support to another woman, um, deducting those deductions, we came up with a temporary award for her for $1,200 a month. That money was then being garnished because it had to be garnished because he was refusing to pay on his own volition in, in accordance with the court order. So that money is now being garnished, and she was able to get off of public assistance, get into um, a decent one room, better than where she was living, where she was living with two or three people in a one one room, uh, one room, not apartment, but one room within an apartment. So she and three others were living in one bedroom, if you will. Um, so she was able to get out of that and find a s more suitable living arrangements for herself. So temporary maintenance, when it works and um, when, you, when the system works and when you can garnish his income because he is paid on the books and you have access to that, um, it is very helpful for our victims and survivors of domestic violence and just divorce uh, clients in general. It's going to help you to take uh, someone leaving a, a home, someone leaving a, a, a dangerous marriage keep them from actual poverty and put them in a safe place. Or at least uproot them, bring them up from poverty as well. Yeah, absolutely. So just to be the, you know, to play the devil's advocate, why is it important? Why is this something that society should be spending its limited resources on providing this type of, of legal counsel? Well, for one thing, statistics show that um, a lot of our aging population are women and they're lower income than the male population of aging people in this country. And so if we don't want to have the sizable portion of our aging population impoverished, we need to pay more attention to issues such as this, such as dividing pensions upon a divorce of a, a long-term marriage so that um, women in particular will have the economic rights that will propel them into an aging situation where they're not impoverished. Our conversation so far has been about women in poverty and your efforts to defend them. How does immigration status play in? It opens a whole new array of issues that you need to deal with. Um, so for one thing, um, when we're talking about the dynamics of intimate partner violence, and specifically in relationships, in marital relationships, where one spouse is undocumented and the other spouse has citizenship or, or their green card legal residency, um, that often becomes another tool to maintain power and control, right? So you leave me, I'll have you deported. Exactly. Exactly. You'll never see your children again if they have children together. Um, I know that in your, in your home country, there's civil strife there. You're going to get killed if you, if you go back to your home country. Or I know where your family lives in your home country and there's no protection for them, so I'll do something to them. And that becomes a, another threat. So you've had clients that their abusers have threatened to harm their family in their home country. Absolutely. What can you do about that? That's a hard one for us. We have no 
authority in other countries, right? We don't, we're not familiar with the legal system. In some cases, um, when those threats, uh, it looks like those threats are credible. Sometimes they're just threats. Sometimes they're just empty threats, and um, and 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 they never make good on them. But sometimes there is evidence that um, something will happen, and so. You know, we've gotten, for example, uh, we've gotten the State Department involved um, sometimes when there's U.S. citizen children abroad. Um, for example, the abuser may, may kidnap, um, may go down to the home country and kidnap um, children. Um, we could get the State Department involved. Sometimes we request assistance from attorneys in other countries that we may have relationships with and see what they can do on the ground in the home country. But, um, but there's not a lot of, of tools at our disposal as attorneys in New York State to, to do that. If you're an undocumented person here in the United States and your partner is the only citizen, how real is the threat that by leaving you may be subjecting yourself to deportation? Well, there are protections that exist under the law. So Congress enacted the Violence Against Women Act, um, and as part of that um, legislation in 1994, they created a process by which an abused, uh, undocumented spouse can engage in a process called self-petitioning. Ordinarily, in a marital relationship, when one spouse is a citizen and the other spouse is undocumented, we all know from the movies that the citizen spouse petitions for the undocumented spouse. But when that is that dynamic is being used as a tool of power and control to perpetuate abuse, then the abused spouse has the ability to petition the government to cut him out of the process completely and to request the issuance of her lawful status without his help. And that's something that we, we routinely help clients do because it's a very, very common dynamic that exists. And that's a protection that exists only within married uh, partners. That mm -hmm. wouldn't apply to someone who was in a more informal relationship. That's correct, because the immigration laws are based on family sponsorship, and by family, they're talking about marital relationships. There is another protection for undocumented victims of crimes, including intimate partner violence, that exists for people who are not married, and that is called U non-immigrant status, or, or colloquially, the U visa. And what that is... This is the letter U. The letter U, the letter U. Um, and what that is, is basically a way that um, Congress made it possible for undocumented victims to come forward and report crimes to law enforcement. It's a tool for law enforcement as well as a remedy for undocumented victims of crimes who want to come forward and, and go to law enforcement authorities to investigate or prosecute those So this crimes. is not just intimate partner abuse? Correct. It's for a lot of different crimes, a whole, a whole list of crimes that Congress deemed to sort of be in the shadows and uh, to affect immigrant communities um, a lot. Um, and they, they picked these crimes as crimes that will stay in the shadows unless people feel confident enough to, to report the crimes to law enforcement. These are crimes like uh, sexual trafficking, prostitution, drugs? Trafficking is one of them. Sexual assault is one of them. Um, witness tampering, incest, rape, domestic violence, um, things like involuntary servitude, um, certain sorts of fraud and corruption. There's a, there's a list of them. So witnesses or victims uh, can use this additional avenue to 
to find uh, status protection. That's right. If they cooperate with law enforcement authorities in an investigation or prosecution of their crime, the crime of which they're a victim, if they can show that they suffered substantially as a result of that crime, um, and if they show that they are not otherwise inadmissible or undesirable to, for the U.S. To, to, to allow them to stay here. By having a criminal record? For or? example, although sometimes they can get those crimes waived depending on the circumstances. Um, then they will be allowed to reside here with U non-immigrant status, which eventually does lead to the issuance of, of lawful status or green card, and then eventually to citizenship. When you say that it's related to a crime or criminal investigation, let's say a client comes to you and says, this is what happened. I was trafficked here illegally. I was in a condition of involuntary servitude, but there's no criminal proceeding currently going on. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you commence that criminal proceeding? Is that required? So um, that's actually a different kind of visa. Um, there's a separate visa for, for victims of trafficking called the T visa, the letter T. And in T visas, you can actually try to initiate an investigation by coming forward to law enforcement authorities. It could be a federal prosecutor, it could be the Office of Civil Rights, it could be your local district attorney, and you essentially um, prepare your client to, to make herself available to law enforcement. And all that matters is that availability. In the U visa context, by contrast, you actually have to have the U petitioner actively participate in an, in an investigation or a prosecution. And, is, and that has to be ongoing. It can't just be a crime took place, uh, no prosecutors looking at it. It can be because um, certifying law enforcement agencies are the police. So for example, a client who just made a police report but the district attorney didn't want to prosecute because for example, the abuser was never found. He fled, so they couldn't make an arrest. But you can still request a U on that basis because the NYPD did take a report and the client did cooperate. NYPD is the New York Police Department. Um, the client did cooperate in coming forward with information to make it possible for the police to investigate that crime. In your daily practice, is this a useful tool when you're dealing with clients who are undocumented? Absolutely. Um, it's incredibly common that we have clients come into our office and say, I'm the victim of a crime, um, but I don't have lawful status. And um, either I'm afraid to go forward, or what are the consequences of going forward, or my abuser threatened to have me deported. Am I going to get deported? And so we're constantly reassuring our clients um, if we think that they're eligible for you non-immigrant status, we're constantly reassuring them that no, you can come forward as long as you cooperate with law enforcement, you can be protected and, and you don't have to be deported. You can actually get lawful status as a result of your cooperation. But there's the, a limitation to the U visa. Yeah. The issue is that Congress only granted visas and a limit of 10,000 visas per year to be issued to people in this category, 10,000 visas na nationally. And that is not a lot. Um, so every year that Congress has allocated these visas, the visas have been used up um, within you know four or five months of the calendar year. Um, and so there's actually a waiting list now. There's a backlog of years. And so what so, happens if it's, if it's May or June and there's no more U visas left? 
then we have to advise clients that they can still go forward and they can petition, but they're going to be placed on a waiting list. Um, and in the meantime, what, after their you petition is approved, they will be put on this waiting list and they will be given work authorization and something called deferred action status, which is not a permanent status. It's just sort of like a discretionary, we're not going to deport you promise from the government. Um, and they sort of are able to, to work and live here, but it's not, uh, it's not permanent until the next round of visas become available to them. There's a, an old saw that says justice delayed is justice denied. But when it comes to immigration, sometimes a delay is a good thing. So is the fact that they're putting off this uh, deportation perhaps for years, that could, that could be seen as a win for a client? It can be seen as a win for a client, um, but it does also delay other things in their lives. So for example, somebody in deferred action status with work authorization can't travel. And she, if she has children in her home country, she can't begin the process of reunifying them um, to be with her in the United States. And they may have been separated for years. So we've talked about the work that you're doing in helping women in poverty, women who have been subject to abuse, to assert their rights. But how is the system not working? Or in what areas could the system be improved? What do you see from your daily what? Many of our clients do seek uh, help from the family court, and the family court is so inundated with cases. I mean, I just remember some statistic, um, just a recent one, it, back in 2011, nearly three-quarters of a million petitions were filed in the family court. 750,000 petitions throughout New York State were filed. And most of those clients were unrepresented, and judges, because there are so few of them, were taking only a few minutes to adjudicate their matters. So because of the um, lack of resources in New York State, because of lack of judges, because of lack of counsel, um, there is just this serious problem of clients not getting the things that they deserve when they go into court. When so, you say a few minutes, you mean they're making an entire decision on something like custody or support uh, in the same amount of time it might take you to order food at a restaurant. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. We, we broke it down as an organization. We were having a meeting recently and we broke it down and it turned out to be, I believe, five minutes per case. In the in, aggregate. In the aggregate, So yes. that means um, there, uh, the case might take a year to get final resolution and there's going to be maybe, I don't know, six or seven court appearances. Those court appearances are maybe only two minutes long one minute long. So even adding up all these court appearances, the, the total number of amount of time may be five minutes? Something as ridiculous like that. as that or sounds, less. yes, absolutely. Because the court has maybe 20 to 30, sometimes even 50 cases on a daily calendar. So in order to process those cases and because there's limited resources for overtime and uh, the court has to end at a certain time and begin at a certain time for afternoon call and end at a certain time, so given those restraints on resources. Um, you're only given a few minutes to state your case. And part of what we also do with clients is to make sure that they have a bullet point, if they are going in unrepresented, to have a bullet point of just what issues need to come across immediately to a court in order to get the court's attention so uh, the proper decision can be issued at each hearing. 
Okay, it's time for the MCLE credit code. The code for this interview is 10615. Again, that's 10615. Now back to the interview. So when there's only five minutes to decide a case, it's even more important that the clients are using those minutes effectively and efficiently. Is this another call for uh, more counsel, more right, more uh, representation? More counsel, more judges, more resources, more funding for state courts. I mean, there's so many more, you know, there, there are a lot of things that need to, to be established before any client can get more time before a judge besides just the right to counsel. Um, you know, and of course that number doesn't account for trials. We're, we're talking about your daily court appearances where you can actually get before the court and, and speak to the judge. I mean, that's where you're given an, a limited time frame. Um, and of course there are outliers, you know, like the, the trials that go on for two or three days. Um, but sometimes just talking about trial dates, a trial may start in July. And because of the limited resources, say if it's a custody trial, it starts in July, you have your first date in July, and it needs to be adjourned because the court has other cases to hear, you might not get a date until October. Now the school, school semester or the school has begun, so the child is still stuck either with both parties or with an abusive party and now has to enroll in a school district where that party is, and no decision has been made, thereby impacting the entire family's um, best interest. You know, the client is probably still being abused and there's no um, resolution to her case. So it can go on and on just because of these limited resources, because of... Maybe you can give access. us a specific example from your, from your practice. I have one, the one that I spoke about earlier, um, one client who was petitioning for custody and he petitioned the court seeking custody back in 2011 and we were just issued a decision this month. So the matter started in 2011, and because the matter didn't go to trial into, until 2013, and we had separate trial dates in December, two in January, one in February, because of all that, a decision wasn't issued until June. So, I mean, just to give you a time frame of how long a custody matter can take, it could take years just because of limited resources, because of lack of counsel. Was that partly due to the discovery issues? or No, it wasn't due to discovery. It was just due to the amount of time that you can get before a judge. So, so a decision could have been made three years ago. Absolutely. Had you had a trial, a day-by-day -day trial, and if the judge would have issued a decision within the 60-day rule that it needed to issue a decision by. But because judges have volumes of cases and have to issue decisions on so many custody trials or our order of protection trials, um, they're just backlogged and don't have the resources to help them have decisions rendered within an efficient time frame. Well, before we go, why don't we end on a, a more positive note? Why don't we talk about a, a case that perhaps against the odds, uh, you were able to help someone through this uh, very challenging process? Well, I'll I'll talk to you about a, uh, an immigration client who we helped, um, I'll use a false name, uh, Maria. Let's say her name was Maria. She was from the Dominican Republic. She left her son in the Dominican Republic and came to the United States to seek a better life. And she ended up marrying somebody who happened to be a US citizen. And she was very happy. She thought she was 
marrying the man of her dreams and they would be stable and, and she would be secure in, in her marriage. Well, he became very abusive. He raped her. He sexually assaulted her. He told her, if you go to the police, you're going to be deported. Um, on top of that, she also only spoke Spanish and she was hard of hearing. So finally, after a very egregious assault, she, she did manage to, to go to the police and she was referred to social services and then eventually got to us. What we did was we tried to find a pro bono attorney who would take her case and we did. We found one who also worked with a paralegal who helped him interpret and he filed one of the self-petitions under the Violence Against Women Act so that she could um, have the opportunity to get her lawful residency without her husband's help. In that process, he actually found out that she had already been deported. She'd been ordered deported. She hadn't effectuated the, the deportation or she hadn't left. And so on top of the self-petition, he also had to go to immigration court and get that um, deportation order canceled, which he could do because she was self-petitioning under the Violence Against Women Act. So he did that, and she now has her green card. She is able to stay here lawfully. She is able to work. Um, she's learning English. She's also able to petition for her son from the Dominican Republic to, to join her in the United States. And so that's a real example of um, the life-saving intervention that uh, an attorney, this happened to be a pro bono attorney, um, could make in her life. And there's thousands of women who are in the same situation who just haven't been connected with an attorney yet. Susanna, Diane, this is very important work that you're doing and we wish you the very best of luck going forward. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank Thanks you. For Thanks for having us. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.